Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Wednesday evening where we are set to explore another movie. And this evening we have before us The Count of Monte Cristo. And I am flying solo this evening. Again, Father Mike sometimes just with his busy schedule. And again, he is a priest, so he is called out from something at the last second. And he was unable to be with us this evening. But uh, he promises to be with us. Uh, again, next week and, and out from there, hopefully, as he typically is, from one week to the next. And just by way of looking forward to future programming, it looks like Father Mike and I are going to be going back to the movie theaters and, and watch both Venom and uh, The First Man, the movie about Neil Armstrong. So those two movies are forthcoming. So just kind of stay tuned. If those two movies intrigue you, then please tune in over the next two weeks. But for tonight, this evening... We have one of my all-time favorites, The Count of Monte Cristo. Now, I'm a, a big fan of Alexander Dumas, and so uh, when the movie came out, and I think it was, what, back in 2002, I was really excited. And, and the movie deviates from the book quite a bit, <laughs> quite a bit, but still, nonetheless, a, a great story, a great movie. And so this evening, this is what we are about. If you do have any questions, comments, observations, don't hesitate to send me your email at jholljmj at yahoo.com. Or as always, you can go to my website at joeholcraft.org, J-O-E-H-O-L-L-C-R-A-F-T.org. Just hit the contact link button there and send your message on its way. Okay, so just by way of a brief snapshot, I mean... One can get lost in, re in a review of this movie, but I'm going to try to keep this brief so we can really get into the, the nooks and crannies of what I think to be some really important subject matter. The movie Count of Monte Cristo, as I had already noted, was written initially by Alexander Dumas back in 1844, a French writer. And the movie itself is really a classic tale of romance, a classic tale of adventure, a classic tale of revenge. Uh, the movie starts with boyhood friends Edmund Dantes, the, the humble, the meek, and virtuous son of a clerk. <laughs> of course, he is played by Jim Caviezel. And Fernand Mondego, who is this spoiled son of a nobleman, who is insanely jealous of Edmund for, among other reasons, his beautiful girlfriend Mercedes. Again, the movie starts with them arriving at uh, a beach seeking medical care for the captain of their merchant ship. And really, they risk life and limb by rowing to the Isle of Elba. Elba is the home of exiled French General Napoleon Bonaparte, right? So during their brief stay, Napoleon asks the naive Edmund to carry a letter back to France. And Edmund obliges, right? So after returning home and being promoted by his employer and reuniting with his beautiful Mercedes, his true love, Edmund is betrayed by his good friend Mondego, and several, what we could say, co-conspirators who are really eager to benefit from framing him for high treason. And while Mondego was certainly motivated to frame his good friend for his beautiful fiancée, 
in his own words, and I thought this to be kind of a gripping line, he wasn't supposed to want to be like someone of Edmund's stature. So the whole reason why he framed his good friend Edmund Montez, yeah, he had a beautiful girlfriend, beautiful fiance, but in the end, he was the son of a nobleman, right? He didn't want to be like someone of his stature who is just what? But the humble, meek, and virtuous son of a clerk, right? Now, among those benefiting from this frame job was Villefort. Villefort was the chief magistrate and son of a very vocal advocate of Bonaparte, who was ultimately the one who was to receive the fated letter from Napoleon. And the other was Danglars. Now, Danglars was one of his shipmates, and he really got upset when, well, one could say Edmond Dantes passed him up. Danglars was probably the, the one next in line to receive the ship, and it was Edmond Dantes. So, ultimately, between Mondego, Villefort, and Danglars, you have these co-conspirators who really frame Edmond Dantes, because for one reason or another, <laughs> they have something to gain if he disappears from the scene. With Edmond Dantes, he is sentenced to Chateau d'If, and yet he faces his fate with a deep sense that God is with him. But of course, after seven years, Edmund begins to doubt any, uh, we could say, heavenly interest in his plight. And that's when Faria tunnels through Edmund's floor in a failed escape attempt. You know, this older, uh, elderly man who thought he was at the outer wall and, you know, ready to escape. But of course, that's not the, the case. And so, he meets this man by the name of Faria, who again is this veteran of the prison for over 11 years. Now, Faria is a real man of God who refuses to let Edmund's faith die. And he ultimately educates him in various subjects as the two now spend years of covertly chiseling toward the outer wall. Now together, uh, they unravel this frame-up job that I was just talking about that cost Edmund his freedom. And this really caused Edmund Dantes, this young man, to burn with anger and lust for revenge. Jim Caviezel does a beautiful job of acting this out when he comes to realize that he was framed by Mondego and Villefort and, and Danglar. And so when he is finally liberated from his cell, Edmund heads home with newfound, unexpected wealth, the treasure of Monte Cristo, of course. He ultimately dons the moniker of Count of Monte Cristo, which he then really uses as a disguise. And this is the real charm of this movie, I think, that he is operating under this moniker, under this disguise, to get back at uh, Mondego and Villefort and Danglar. Uh, so he manipulates this series of events, bringing these three to justice. But in the end, he realizes that God used all things to bring to him those whom he loves. All right, now, before we engage some of the redemptive themes by way of maybe virtue and, and other aspects to the Christian life, we should first say something about the richness of Christian allegory found in this movie. Now, remember that an allegory is the description of one thing under the image of another, right? And while every movie on some level is communicating something underneath another thing, as Father Mike and I have been talking about a great deal, some movies, uh, some storylines are explicit to use the stage of cinema as a Christian allegory, never undermining the story itself and 
you know, that makes for great writing when the story is so engaging, so gripping that you kind of forget the allegory only to step back to see the allegory and then the one in light of the other. Well, that's just a great storyline. And certainly, again, this is what you have in The Count of Monte Cristo. Now, to tease this out, I thought we might turn our attention to the book because there is a line that you don't find in the movie that is quite evocative to what I am talking about as it relates to Christian allegory. In one passage, we read this, and again, this is from the book. This is penned by Alexander Dumas. A little Corvette was bobbing in a fairly large cove. Uh, by the way, my friends, right? Uh, Corvette. <laughs> we, don't, we don't mean a, a flashy red car here, but a small warship designed for convoy escort duty, right? So <laughs> don't be confused by that. Dumas continues, It had a narrow hole in a tall mast with the flag flying from the Latin yard and bearing Monte Cristo's coat of arms. A mountain on a field of azure, azure, bright blue color, right? With a cross, goals at the chief, which could have been an allusion to his name as much as to any personal memory of suffering in the mysterious night of man's past. And then Dumas writes, <laughs> evoking Calvary, which our Savior's passion has made a mountain more precious than gold, and the infamous cross, which is divine blood made holy. So here, Dumas is making a uh, less than subtle allegory between the island of Monte Cristo and Calvary, right? The hill on which, of course, Jesus was crucified. I mean, think of it, my friends. What does Monte Cristo mean but the mountain of Christ? Just as Jesus was innocently whipped, so do we see Edmond Dantes in this movie when he was in Chateau d'If, innocently whipped. We might even go so far as to say that the Count's rebirth <laughs> reminds us of Christ's resurrection, where he, like Jesus, emerges from a cave with a great treasure. Although, of course, in Edmund's case, <laughs> the cave contained a big chest of golden jewels, and this is the great treasure of Monte Cristo. But in the end, I do think that we have something uh, quite provocative as it relates to Christian allegory. Not only do you have this direct allusion to the mountain of Christ in Calvary and Edmund Dantes emerging from this mountain with a great treasure, just as Christ emerges with a great treasure in his own resurrection, we also have another point, and that is before all of this took place, he needed to pass through. He needed to endure, and that is what I think Alexander Dumas captures quite beautifully when Edmund Dantes was being whipped in the dungeon. Okay, all that being said, I do want to bring our attention back to the character of Faria, uh, the elderly man of wisdom who taught Edmund for 14 years in the arts of the, the sciences and warfare. One of my favorite parts in this whole narrative is the back and forth exchange between these two men which is really highlighted by not only instructing him in the arts, but inquiring into his life as he asks the necessary questions. You know, what is the value of what we are learning in the light of who you are and where you are going? As I was watching this film for, again, probably the 10th time, I don't know, I could not help but think of the spiritual work of mercy instructing the ignorant. Instructing the ignorant is a very important spiritual work of mercy that I think we have forgotten about, and to some degree, 
that whole scene is a beautiful insight into why instructing the ignorant is so important. Uh, what do I mean? Well, the word instruct comes from the Latin instruere, which means to build up and, and maybe even more literally to pile up. In English, there is also this notion of strewing something. So, for example, to strew hay or, or to say that the seed has been strewn. Thus, to instruct means to disperse knowledge, or maybe better said, to build someone up in what is learned. And again, do we not see this with Faria and Edmund? You know, these days, I think the word ignorant is most often used in a very negative or pejorative sense. And thus to say that someone is ignorant in contemporary terms, at least, is to say someone is stupid or foolish. But more literally, my friends, and, and less pejoratively, the word simply refers to someone who does not know something. So ignorance means when someone simply does not happen to know something and can benefit from instruction in the matter. And this is what is meant by the spiritual work of mercy, instruct the ignorant. I mean, let's personalize this. Could we not say that all of us can benefit from proper instruction by those who know more about a certain subject or issue than we do? And while instructing and educating folks in the area of our expertise is a good thing, it is something greater, a work of mercy, when the knowledge conferred is something essential, maybe quintessential towards saving us. Uh, here, one might consider one's spiritual advisor. I mean, think about that person you are most grateful for, as that person might have helped you better understand the faith. If we are grateful for someone, that probably means that someone is exercising this great spiritual work of mercy, instructing the ignorant. Now, in speaking of instructing the ignorant as a spiritual work of mercy, we should say that at least two things are meant here. First, because the intellect is a faculty of the soul, our human spirit is nourished by all instruction. Right? We have the faculties of the intellect, will, and memory. Certainly the intellect, a very important faculty of the soul. Uh, second, and maybe more particularly, the church has in mind the kind of instruction that most benefits the soul. Again, if secular instruction can benefit us unto worldly ends, how much greater, my friends, the benefits of religious instruction that has heavenly and eternal rewards. So, the goal of all religious instruction is always to place one into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And thus the goal is not to simply help people know about God, right, but to know God. You know, often when I teach on this kind of subject matter, I am reminded of Psalm 119, the longest of all the Psalms that goes on for 176 verses, praising the glory of God's truth praising the glory of receiving God's knowledge, which is more precious than gold, many times refined. My dear friends, instructing the ignorant is a great and wonderful spiritual work of mercy, whereby souls are saved. Knowledge of God, my friends, has an unestimable value on the soul. And I say that because we cannot calculate how one truth might impact a decision we make that would benefit us unto eternal reward. All right, kind of circling back to the movie here. Uh, one of the real jewels of this movie is that Faria 
is passing on all that he knows, that he might realize, that Edmund Dantes might realize his full potential for the glory of God. In arguably <laughs> the most striking line in the whole movie, Fario, as he was dying, exhorts Edmund to find the treasure of Monte Cristo and to ultimately use it for good. And to this, Edmund responds, Priest, I do not know this God you speak of. And Faria responds, You may have lost faith in God, but He has not lost faith in you. Now, how beautiful is that? I have often wondered that maybe we are spending too much time asking the question of whether or not we believe in God, and not enough time contemplating, reflecting upon the reality that God believes in us. You have heard me say on more than one occasion that often is the case that behind the question of atheism is a hurt, is a pain, is a wound. The person isn't so much struggling with atheism in as much as he or she is struggling with a wound. And to not believe in God can become something of a defense mechanism. And does that have consequences? You betcha it does. And this is why we need to work through that. And as brothers and sisters in Christ, why we need to personally accompany those who might be struggling with just not their faith in God, but also potentially, possibly the wound that precedes what someone does or does not think they believe. You see, my friends, Edmund Dantes experienced a profound wound. This was a man of God. This was a man of humility. This was a man of meekness. This was a man of great faith. He saw all things in light of God. For the first seven years, he was riding into the wall of the prison. God will give me justice. But <laughs> as he reminded the priest, as he so called him, when the priest saw the wall and those words engraved into the wall fading, Edmund said, those words have faded as God has faded from my heart. God was fading from the heart of Edmund Dantes because of a deep wound. And so we often enter into that debate of whether or not we believe in God. But I wonder, my friends, if the Count of Monte Cristo has a lesson for us, as it has a reminder for us that God has not lost faith in you and what you can do and overcome. Amen to that. All right, another point, and I think real interesting development in this movie, is that the brunt of this story is really shrouded in Edmund Dantes's quest for revenge, right? And what is the counter virtue to wrath, to vengeance, but meekness, right? The virtue that Edmund Dantes really embodied before he was sent to Chateau d'If. I thought this might be a time to briefly reflect into the virtue of meekness, see how it counters anger and vengeance, and then maybe pour this back into what we see in the movie. The irony of meekness is that it is the one virtue above all that allows us to, we could say, remain in ourselves in the midst of adversity, right? It allows us to maintain, we could say, self-possession when adversity strikes, rather than be possessed by the adversity itself. I was thinking about this idea as it relates to meekness and watching Edmund Dantes succumb to his torture. And don't get me wrong, my friends, 
he was a man of great heroic virtue for quite some time, believing in God, and ultimately he was broken down. But I couldn't help but think again of, of this virtue of meekness, mindful that meekness is that virtue which allows us to remain ourselves in the midst of adversity. Maybe we could say that meekness is more synonymous with empowerment than it is with weakness. Because as St. Thomas Aquinas once mused, <laughs> meekness makes man self-possessed. So since meekness is self-possession in the face of adversity, it really enables a person to do good. So we ought to see meekness as not cowardliness, timidity, or even servility, but rather the power that restrains the onslaught of anger and subjects it to the order of what but reason. So while it may be more natural to express anger when one is assaulted, meekness, my friends, is the higher path, right? It prevents evil from completely overcoming the person who is already suffering enough from evil. Meekness prevents this suffering from advancing to the precincts of the soul, first to depression, and then to despair. And highlighting meekness, my friends, is important for us because when you watch this movie, Edmund Dantes is a man of great meekness. Jim Caviezel does an incredible job of communicating this great virtue, and yet he still falls. He still falls. So we are reminded that while meekness is a great virtue and one that could be practiced and strengthened over time. Ultimately, as all virtue is, it is dependent upon God's grace. And so this is what we reach out to, right? God's grace. Now, highlighting its relationship to anger, a person in adversity wants to be able to act, right? Not acted upon. It is so easy to be consumed by anger. But that is a way of being acted upon, right? Even though the anger flows directly from one's own wounds, we allow ourselves to be taken over by something from outside of us, right? Donald DeMarco, in his book, The Many Faces of Virtue, writes, A person who readily accepts the tag of victim is already engaging, if not floundering, in self-pity. Self-pity. The failure to summon the positive power of meekness is like piling bricks on your chest. And what I thought to be quite interesting in this movie is that when Edmund Dantes meets Faria, he talks about the number of stones, right? <laughs> and he says, yes, there's, I don't know what the number was, 1,439. And Faria looks at Edmund Dantes, he says, oh, yes, I know, but have you named them yet? <laughs> <laughs> Have you named them yet? So I was made to think about that as Donald DeMarco there was talking about piling these bricks on his chest. It's as if Edmund Dantes, as he was counting the stones, the bricks in his cell, he was piling those on his chest. He was allowing the adversity of those walls to overwhelm him. And my dear friends, transpose this into our everyday life. What are those stones? Have we numbered them? Have we named them like Faria? And have we allowed them to overwhelm us, get the best of us? What God calls us to is a deeper meekness, 
that deeper virtue that allows us to be self-possessed, that, that does not allow the stones, the bricks to overwhelm us. So very important. All right, just by way of closing thought, and there's so much more we can get into here with this movie. In another gripping line, Edmund Dantes is giving a toast to Mercedes' son, Albert, who he does not know at the time, but is actually his own son, right? And he says, looking at Albert, Life is a storm, my friend. You will bask in the sunlight one moment, be shattered on the rocks the next. What makes you a man is what you do when that storm comes. I thought that to be another tantalizing line. Life is a storm, my young friend. You'll bask in the sunlight one moment, be shattered on the rocks the next. What makes you a man is what you do when that storm comes. How can we not think of that great passage that comes to us from Mark chapter 4, verses 38 to 42, where we read, But Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on the cushion. So they woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care? We are perishing. Then Jesus got up and rebuked the wind and the sea. Silence, he commanded. Be still. And the wind died down, and it was perfectly calm. Why are you so afraid, he asked. Do you still have no faith? Here I often reflect into peace. Peace not as the absence of warfare, but as spiritual welfare. Not as a negotiated treaty, but being in covenant harmony with God. You see, my friends, peace isn't so much the absence of the storm as much as it is looking into the eye of the storm and having the strength necessary to say, peace, be still. Because <laughs> I'm sure, as Edmund Dantes said, we have all basked in the sunlight. And also, maybe not so distant from that sunlight, we were shattered on the rocks. But what does define us? How we handle the storm. Do we look into the eye of the storm and say, peace, be still? Do we look at the rocks and stones and say, no, I'm not going to count you. I'm not going to allow you to overwhelm me because God has something greater. Amen. Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.com dot org.